The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Because I need help with this one. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not kept us in the dark, but revealed yourself to us. We thank you that your word is trustworthy and true. And, and Father, as we explore Hebrews 7 in this mysterious man called Melchizedek, we, we pray, Lord, that, that you will preach the sermon today, that you will preach something that's far better than anything I can do. We pray that we will hear from you today. Please, Lord, we pray that your, your gospel will be proclaimed with boldness and received with gladness, and we pray that you please, your presence be here. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I would encourage you today to have your Bibles open, because um, we'll be referring to it a lot, and uh, also to make sure that what I'm telling you is true. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one hopefully in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, please take this Bible as our gift to you. So let's proceed. Why should you draw near to God through Jesus and no one else? So why should you draw near to God through Jesus and no one else? The author of the letter, Letter to the Hebrews, knows something about you. He knows that you need a priest. Now, what is a priest? Why are priests important? A priest is a minister of any religion, whether it's true or false or good or evil, that has been given the authority to teach sacred information or perform the religious rituals to bring faith to others. And it's interesting that just about every religion has some sort of priests. Why is that? Because deep down inside, we know that there's this, this great distance between us and the holiness of God. And something has to bridge that distance. So a priest is a mediator between God and man. He's like an ambassador. So he represents God to the people. He represents and intercedes for men to God. You cannot draw near to God on your own. You need a priest. And the audience of this letter, these are Hebrew Christians, they would share that same opinion. Now the recipients of our letter are converted have converted out of Judaism into Christianity. So Christianity is not a new religion, but rather it fulfills Judaism. And the recipients of this letter have turned to Jesus. They become followers of Jesus. They become Christians. However, they're still tempted to lean on the Levitical priests because that is their history. That's their custom. It's been their law. The Levitical priests are in the Bible and if they do that, then they won't get persecuted. Because remember, this letter is written to a marginalized group of Jewish Christians facing persecution. And they're facing persecution because of their faith in Christ. 
And this persecution is coming not just from the Jews, but also from the Greco-Roman culture. So they're tempted to not hold fast to the gospel, and they're influenced to leave Jesus. This temptation to fall away or turn away from Jesus is tremendous because there's potential loss of well-being and property. They're being shut out from engaging in business and society. They're being ostracized. So they're tempted to leave Jesus for what they know, which are the Levitical priests. Now, at the time this letter is written, these priests are still operating. They're still offering sacrifices, interceding for the people in the temple. The audience of our letter are able to go back to the Levitical priests. Now, we're probably, more than likely, not tempted to go back or go back to the Levitical priests. However, we will be tempted to leave Jesus for other hopes. There may be distractions, inclinations towards autonomy and rebellion, marginalization, self-righteousness. There's this ever-growing presence of persecution. They want you to leave Jesus behind. They want you to find your joy, find your rest somewhere else. So why should we draw near to God through Jesus instead of the cacophony of voices vying for our attention? And the reason is because Jesus is the greatest and only true priest. So why should the Hebrews draw near to God through Jesus instead of the biblical priesthood? So our author has a heart for his audience. And the author will show them how Christ Jesus is the greatest priest. The Old Testament itself, the authority they claim to believe, the Jewish Christians claim to believe, speaks of a greater category of priests in the Levitical priesthood. And this greater priest, this is Jesus, this greater priest, he has come, and there's no going back. As we see the comparison between Jesus and the Levitical priests, we'll see how great Jesus is, we'll see how much better his priesthood is, And we'll see that he is the greatest and only true priest. And this new category of priest is greater than the biblical priest in four ways. And we'll see that Jesus meets all four of these categories. Therefore, we must draw near to God through Jesus and no one else. But before we get to the four points, what put in our author's mind the idea of a greater priesthood? Where does this come from? Well, the Old Testament itself points to greater priesthood. Our author, I want to point out, is a Christian. He knows Jesus. Our author knows the Bible. Our author has read Psalm 110. Our author knows that Jesus said himself that he fulfills Psalm 110. In Matthew 24, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 to stump the Pharisees. As in Psalm 110, verse 1, where David, through the Holy Spirit, is hearing a conversation between two people. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now we know, and our author knows, that God, in this passage, is speaking to Jesus. Further on in verse 4 of Psalm 110, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever after the order 
of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 speaks of the expectation of a messianic kingdom and priesthood. And this is written hundreds of years after the establishment of the Levitical priests. And Psalm 110 speaks of this person named Melchizedek. So our author knows, he's wondering, where have I heard Melchizedek before? And he knows that Melchizedek was mentioned in Genesis. So our author can now read Genesis 14, 18 through 20 in the light of Psalm 110, which he now reads in the light of Jesus. So what put in our author's mind the idea of a greater priesthood? Psalm 110 says so. Is our author in it, our author sees a new category of priesthood. So we will see four ways as new priests that will be greater than the biblical priesthood. So we will see that this new priest is both king and priest. He blesses rather than being blessed. He resembles the Son of God in his eternality. And this new priest brings perfection. Once again, the four ways the new priesthood is better, greater as king and priest, greater in that he blesses, greater in that he resembles the Son of God in his eternality, and greater in that he brings perfection. So the spoiler alert is that Jesus is this priest. And our author has declared three times that Jesus is the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And our author will show Jesus is our priest that bridges that wide gulf between us and God. And now let's take a look at this new order of priesthood. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Our passage starts with, For this Melchizedek. Now it says this because it picks up the thought from chapter 6. Back in verse 19 of chapter 6 it says, We have as this a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So what he's talking about, what the author's talking about, is about he, this priest is in the Holy of Holies. It's inside the tabernacle. Only the high priest may enter behind this curtain. No one else can do this. Only the high priest. He continues on in verse 20. It says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our, our behalf. So Jesus has gone behind this curtain. He's gone into the Holy of Holies because he's having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus goes behind the curtain as the high priest. And now our author will compare Jesus with one of the most mysterious and one of the most obscure characters in the books of the Bible, a man named Melchizedek. So first thing we'll see about this man is that Melchizedek is both king and and priest. Looking at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Melchizedek returning from the slaughter of the kings. Now if you don't know what's going on in Genesis 14, you might be thinking, what is this all about? Well, Melchizedek appears briefly in the book of Genesis. It's in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Just three verses. Three verses. And these verses are amidst the story of how four kings from the east came and, and defeated five kings around where Abraham is. And one of the kings uh, was the king of Sodom. And Abraham's nephew Lot lived in Sodom. 
So the invading kings took many captive, including Abraham's nephew Lot. So Abraham, he mustered up an army. He attacked the four kings at, from the east at night and defeated them. Abraham rescued the people taken captive, including his nephew Lot. And as on his way back from his victory, Melchizedek comes out to meet Abraham. And Melchizedek is bringing bread and wine to refresh Abraham and to bless him. So the question arises, who is Melchizedek? Well, in Genesis 14, 18, it says, he is priest of the Most High God. So Most High God is not the title of some heathen deity from that area, but rather is the same sovereign God whom Abraham worshipped. Later on in Genesis 14.22, it says, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Therefore, our author concludes that Abraham and Melchizedek worship the one true God. And this is way before the biblical priests have come around. And I want to point out that Melchizedek is outside of the lineage of Abraham, so he's not related to Abraham. So who is he? And why is nothing more said about him? Some speculate, and this is there, I mean, there's some strange speculations regarding Melchizedek, but some speculate that he was Shem, Noah's son. Now, Shem, if you look at the biblical record, you probably determine that he was a contemporary of Abraham at that time assuming there's no gaps in the genealogy. But, and some say he was angelic or a spiritual being, but there's nothing in the text that suggests those things to be true. Some also believe he's the appearance of a pre-incarnate Christ. And while I believe you can find occurrences of the pre-incarnate Christ in Scripture, in verse 3 of our text, it says, resembling the Son of God. I mean, that verse there, that phrase there, seems, seems to rule that out. And furthermore, why is Jesus' priesthood described as after the order of Melchizedek? See, Melchizedek is being shown or is shown as a type of Christ. And a type is some other person who foreshadows the one that is to come. In the study of types, they call that typology, which is a study interpretation of types and symbols. And a type looks and acts like what it is, so there's a resemblance. There's a resemblance to, uh, to Jesus in Melchizedek. And we will see how Melchizedek is a type of Christ. So except for Psalm 110, the reason nothing more is said about his brief appearance tells us all we need to know for him to be a type of Christ. He is a type of Christ, and it shows what a type of priest that Christ will be. And what little is known about him uh, what we do know is he is able to keep pure religion and faith in God as he received it, as handed down from the time of the flood. So we had the flood, and there's, you know, these are believers, obviously, and they've handed down to generation to generation about this magnificent God that saved them. But despite living in a sinful and godless world, Melchizedek shows it's possible to follow and honor God in such a world. And in that, our, our author is, is showing that, yeah, it's going to be tough. Yeah, our faith is going to be tough. It's going to be hard. We're going to be tested. We may very well be tested to determine how much we love Jesus. 
But Melchizedek shows it's possible to be steadfast in our faith, in the face, in the face of everything. Continuing on, it shows that Melchizedek is both king and priest. Let's take a look. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Now, in Old Testament Israel, the offices of king and priest were kept separated. No one man could accumulate all the power and then dominate all the people. In fact, no one was even worthy of being both king and priest. You look at the best kings and the best priests, and none of them were worthy of being both. If you look in the Old Testament and see how awful some of those kings were, and look at how awful some of the priests were, there's no one that is worthy of this. And yet Melchizedek not only combined both offices, he's also worthy of both offices. The author also considers the messianic significance of his name and title. Take a look at verse 2. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So the name Melchizedek consists of the Hebrew word melech, which means king, combined with sedek, which means righteousness. And this shows what an extraordinary man he was. That despite living amongst extremely depraved Canaanites, Melchizedek was a righteous king, which demonstrates an upright and holy life. He was also king of Salem. Now, at the time this letter is generally accepted in the early church that Salem has been tied to Jerusalem. Jerusalem means city of Salem. Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. But this is just not a lack of war. This is much deeper than just not having war. This is, this, there's a wholeness, a completeness, soundness, health, there's safety involved. It could be considered God's rest, resting in God. I mean, how much more peaceful can that be? That in this godless region, full of war, Melchizedek was a king of righteousness who ruled the city of peace. As king of righteousness and king of peace, our author tells us, as shown in Psalm 110, Melchizedek is presented as a type of the messianic priest king that is to come. The characteristics of whose kingdom is righteousness and peace. And let's also notice the order of the names. Righteousness and peace. Because you cannot have peace without righteousness. In terms of the gospel, peace with God is based upon the righteousness of God. So in Christ, we see the everlasting king promised through David's line, the one who righteousness thrives and peace flourishes. Christ is the righteous branch, whose name is, according to Jeremiah, the Lord is our righteousness. Christ is the prince of peace, according to Isaiah, of his increase, of his government, and of peace, there will be no end. Christ is both king and priest. So a new priest is both king and priest, which leads us to our next point. Melchizedekian priesthood is greater because he blesses. Now our author, again, is very concerned with pointing out how much greater Jesus' priesthood is compared to the Levitical priesthood. The recipients are being pressured to let go of Christ, to turn back to the law. You'll still have the Bible. Just let go of Jesus. Get to keep your job, your stuff, your life. 
The biblical priests are here and they're welcoming you back. But in showing Melchizedek is greater than the Levites, our author argues that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Now this is startling. It would be shocking to a, to a Hebrew to hear that Abraham, or that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. I mean, Abraham is the patriarch. He's the father of the faith. His neighbors called on the prince of God. You can find that in Genesis 23.6. Isaiah 48, 41.8, God himself called on my friend. So how can anyone say that someone is greater than Abraham? Take a look at verse 1 again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, does having an abundance of material things mean that we are blessed? Abraham certainly did have abundance of material things, but I don't think uh, I don't think so. As material things can disappear as quickly as they come, but rather blessing is God giving us the power to do what He wants wants us to do and tends for us to do. Blessing is anything God gives us to make us fully satisfied in Him. And yes, that could mean suffering. Now, God had long promised Abraham would be blessed. In Genesis 12, 2 to 3, it says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who desires you I will curse. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. So as is written in Genesis 14, 19 to 20, in their meeting, and he, Melchizedek, blessed him, being Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So here, Melchizedek is reminding Abraham who it was that actually fought and won the battle for him. It was God that gave Abraham the victory. It is God that Abraham should rely on and be satisfied in. So here we have a priestly figure, Melchizedek, bestowing and confirming Abraham's blessedness in a public way. Martin Luther wrote, Melchizedek presents Abraham to the entire world and declares that only with him in his house and family are the church, the kingdom of heaven, salvation, forgiveness of sins, and the divine blessing. If you look at verse 7 of our text, it says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So here we see Abraham's face-to-face -face encounter with one who is superior to him. Take a look at verse 4, where it says, See how great this man was. This is Melchizedek. See how great Melchizedek was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So do you see what the author is saying? The priesthood of Jesus is supreme because Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of, or a tithe of the spoils. So let's take a look at this. Let's look at verse 6. Verse 6. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
So here we have a man that is not descended from Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek is not in the priestly line, the biblical priestly line, but he is receiving a tithe from Abraham. The biblical priests were to receive the tithes, as shows in verse 5 of our text. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So why does the greater bless the lesser? Well, it's the idea of the stronger helping the weaker. And our author points out that, you know, see how great this man is. The one through whom the biblical priest would come, which would be Abraham, pay the tithe to this great man, Melchizedek. If we look in verse 9, it says, One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, the ones who received tithes, the biblical priests, it could be said paid tithes to Melchizedek before they're even born, paying them through their patriarch Abraham. And this is how our author is trying to show how much greater Melchizedek and the Melchizedekian priesthood is to the biblical priesthood. So if the biblical priest paid tithes to Melchizedek, then his must be the greater priesthood. So if we've seen so far, Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. As we've seen, as our author points out in Genesis, he is greater because he is both king and priest, and he is greater because he blessed. Leads us to our third point. Melchizedekian priesthood is greater in that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God as eternality. This is the part that I thought was pretty cool. Because Melchizedek is a type of Christ. A type is a symbol. A type will act and, and look like what it is. So there's a resemblance. So he's king and priest. He blesses. And now we'll take a look at what is not said about Melchizedek. And here we will see that he is symbolically eternal. I think this is really cool. Take a look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So this does not imply that he's a superhuman being or a manifestation of God. As mentioned earlier, I don't believe the text supports Melchizedek being an angel, a superhuman being, or anything like that. And this passage has also led me to believe that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Again, I gave a couple examples earlier as why I don't believe that. Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Melchizedek, or Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But our author's view is not Melchizedek himself being without beginning and end. But Melchizedek, as presented in Scripture, has no beginning and end. See, the lack of lineage in Genesis is quite remarkable because when you consider the number of genealogies in Genesis alone, we have Adam, we have Noah, Shem, Terah, just to name a few. And the Hebrews kept meticulous records to confirm later on whether one is even eligible to be a biblical priest. So they kept you know, very meticulous records. And yet Melchizedek is the only person among the worshipers of the one true God whose ancestry and descendants are not mentioned in Genesis. 
So the description of without father or mother or genealogy should not be taken literally to mean he had no parents or kids, nor should having neither beginning of days nor end of life be taken to mean that he is eternal. Remember, Melchizedek is a type. He is a type of Christ, meaning he behaves in a way or has characteristics that corresponds to Jesus' character or actions in the New Testament. And our verse says, in verse 3 it says, resembling the Son of God. So the word used as translated, I, I didn't think I would have to break out any Greek. I don't know Greek, so I just studied the word. Uh, it was pointed out to me, actually, that this word, translated resembling, is used only once in the New Testament. The word, and I'm going to butcher the word, I'm sure, is afom oi aho, which means to cause a model to pass off into an image or shape like it. What does that mean? It means to produce a facsimile. It means to render it similar. It means our author uses this word to express that Melchizedek is comparable to Christ only in likeness or type. A.W. Pink says, The silence of the Old Testament scriptures concerning his parentage has a designed significance. The entire omission was ordered by the Holy Spirit in order to present a perfect type of the Lord Jesus. F.F. Bruce says, In the only record which Scripture provides Melchizedek, he appears as a living man, king of Salem, and priest of God Most High, and as such, he disappears. In all this, in the silences as well as the statements, he is a fitting type of Christ. Melchizedek remains a priest continually for the duration of his appearance in the biblical narrative. Therefore, Melchizedek symbolizes eternal life. Melchizedek was a man, he was born, he lived, he died. But in Scripture, he symbolizes eternal life. And our author uses that to compare to Jesus being immortal and eternal. Take a look at verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it testif is testified that he lives. So the author says, in the one case, these are the Levitical priests, this is a priesthood of dying men. They are mortal men. So as one dies, another takes his place. In the case of the tithes, the tithes were received by these dying men. But in the other case, Melchizedek, the tithes were received by one of whom it testified that he lives. So the phrase is testified means that it refers to the scriptural record. It refers to the three verses in Genesis where he appears and then disappears. So the scriptural record testifies that the tithes received by Melchizedek were received by someone whose death is not mentioned. And this reminds us of Christ. That's not to say again that Melchizedek never died but in the scriptural record, he remains alive. Therefore, the tithes were received by one whom it testifies that he lives. So Melchizedek symbolizes eternal life. Therefore, Melchizedek received, alive, received tithes as one whose death is not mentioned. This reminds the author of Jesus' resurrection. And our author, inspired by Psalm 110, reads Genesis 14 through the lens of Jesus Christ. So a Melchizedekian priesthood is greater because he's both king and priest, is greater because he blessed, 
Melchizedekian priesthood is greater because Melchizedek resembles the Son of God in his eternality. And our last point is Melchizedekian priesthood is greater because it brings perfection. When Christ came, he brought with him a new covenant and a new law. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Why do we need a new covenant? Let's take a look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? See, as mentioned before, Melchizedek's appearance in Scripture is fleeting. Just three verses. Not mentioned again until Psalm 110, hundreds of years after the Levitical priesthood is established. It's mentioned that one is coming after the order of Melchizedek. So there's an expectation of the establishment of the Messianic priesthood and kingdom to replace the Levitical priesthood that does not bring perfection. Now, non-Jewish Christians that day would probably say, well, we never thought they were perfect in the first place. Perhaps that's your sentiment today. And you might even think, who cares about the Levitical priesthood? But to the Jewish Christians, this is highly relevant because, again, the Levitical priests were still in operation at the time of this letter. But it's also highly relevant to us as well. Because let's, let's think about this. Think about this for a second. If it were not for Jesus, we would still be under the law and would have to follow the Levitical priests to be right with God. The Levitical priests and the law with the sacrifices was the only way in which sinful people could be reconciled to God. But it did not bring perfection. Our author is using perfection here to refer to salvation. For only the perfect or complete can be presentable and acceptable to God. Sinful people cannot approach God. And because the law is not perfect, salvation is unattainable under the law. Since salvation is not attainable through the Levitical priest, without Jesus we would still be in our sins. But a new priest was needed. And this new priest is outside the Levitical priesthood. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, then it would be meaningless to speak of another priesthood, especially one belonging to a different order other than Aaron. However, instead, the old and inferior order is superseded by a new and superior order. And because of the change in priesthood, we now see that there is a change in the law. Take a look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. We see back in the parenthetical statement in verse 11, it says, For under it, this is the Levitical priesthood, under it, the people received the law. Now this shows a close relationship between the priests and the law. The phrase under it could also be translated as on the basis of it. Because we can see here that on the basis of the Levitical priesthood, the people were given the law. So the law and the priests, they, they go together. And God gave the priests, uh, God gave the people the law 
to reveal his standard of absolute righteousness. And this is to convict us of our true guilt before him. Now the priests were given to intercede for the people and to reconcile them to God and draw people to God. But since the law, which represents the divine standard of God's righteousness, was broken, there was continuous necessity for the ministry of prayer and reconciliation, which the the Levitical priests provided, even though imperfectly. Therefore, Mosaic law coincided with and was inseparable from the provision of a priestly system. So both priests and the people, or actually there are, but you know, there are two problems, there are two problems with the old law. First of all, both the priests and the people were breakers of this law. And since the biblical priests were sinners, they were deprived of the strength or power to offer up an adequate and perfect sacrifice. They had to first offer up a sacrifice for themselves. Secondly, no animal sacrifice or offered up served as a true substitute for the human sinner. Thus, the imperfect Levitical priest system, with this necessary repetition of sacrifices, was witness against itself to the need of a new and better order of priesthood, one which would operate on the basis of a new and effective basis of justification, justification meaning to be declared or made righteous in the sight of God. So, the Old Testament priests pointed forward to Christ's death on the cross for the salvation of sinners. So we look at verse 13. It says, For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So here our author points out that Jesus is not a member of the tribe of Levi. Levi, or the Levites were the only people eligible to be priests under the law. And Jesus, as is reported here, was a member of the tribe of Judah. And this constitutes a new order of priesthood which Christ brings. And this, of course, is not advanced warning. We've heard, I don't know how many times I said it today. It was written in, the, in, the, in our letter that David spoke of it when he said in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David lived under the law and under the Levitical priest, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he announces a, few, uh, a new future new order of priest. And it is long before the coming of Christ. The old order, even long before Christ, the old order was recognized as imperfect and temporary and inadequate. It also signifies a new way of salvation. For where there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. Now when I say law, the term law does not refer to God's moral law. And make that clear. God's moral law never changes because God does not change. And the moral law reflects God's character. Jesus himself in Matthew 5.17 said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, not only affirmed God's moral law, but insisted upon their strictest application. So we must not say, we must never say that God's moral law has been set aside in the coming of Christ. 
but rather it was established and reaffirmed. And every Christian should be able to say how much they love God's law. Psalm 119, just, oh, how I love your law, Lord. But instead, our author has another meaning for law here, and namely the Mosaic law and the system of salvation. This is what he means by changing the law. So a new order of priesthood brings in a new law, which brings in a new way of salvation. Take a look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Melchizedek represents an eternal priest, and Jesus is that priest. Jesus became a priest not because he was part of the proper lineage, but by the power of an indestructible life. We are talking about resurrection. When God says to his son, you're a priest forever, it not only means that his priesthood will never end, it also points to the root and source of this. It lies in the life and strength of God himself. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he manifested the power of unconquerable and indestructible life. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Death is swallowed up in victory. He who died once for us now lives never to die again. And it is Jesus' indestructible life which guarantees he will be priest forever. Take a look at verse 17. We'll wrap this up. For as witness of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. From the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of his weakness and uselessness. The law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Again, when Christ came, he brought with him a new covenant and a new law. The old law was weak and useless for salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the old law. Thus, he fulfilled the old priesthood. He accomplished what the old law and its priests could not do, which was provide full atonement for our sins. The former commandment was set aside. So to fall back to Jesus, to Judaism, is to go back to something that doesn't even exist anymore. The law expired. It was fulfilled by Jesus. Even though the biblical priest was still functioning when his letter was written, it's as if they were no more. To turn from Jesus is to turn from God's priest. But if the Levitical priest cannot bring perfection, let alone salvation, and if we being sinners are not perfect, and since you need to be perfect to approach God, how can we approach God since none of us are righteous? Our author introduces us to a better way. In this better way, our new priesthood brings perfection. See, God in his righteousness condemns us in our sin. Our sins must be paid for, and you cannot pay them. You cannot save them. You cannot save yourself. You can't just ignore our sin and let them go. You can't just sweep them under a rug. You can't just ignore them because then he would not be righteous. But God in his love became a man. And this man, he lived a life we could not and would not live. 
He lived a perfect life and a righteous life. There was never a moment when Jesus did not worship and love God as he deserves to be loved. There was never a moment in our lives where we ever worshiped or loved God as he deserves. Jesus lived this perfectly righteous life, and yet he willingly went to Calvary. He willingly went to a cross. He willingly was hung on a cross in our place to die. While hanging on this cross, God placing all of our sins upon him. And while hanging on the cross with all of our sins upon him, God turned his back on his son, separating himself from his son. Because his only son became sin. Jesus dying on the cross, taking God's punishment in our place. It means that the separation from God that we deserve for all eternity, Jesus experienced. And all the wrath that God has stored up to deal with his hatred of us and our crimes against him were poured out onto his own son. It was the will of God to crush the one in whom he was well pleased. He's then buried in the tomb with our sins. On the third day, God, through his spirit, raising Jesus from the dead, leaving our sins in the grave. Satisfying God's justice, vindicating the righteousness of, of Christ, and justifying us, declaring us righteous. This is the better way. God has paved a new way to God himself. By sending his son to the cross, crushing him, then raising him from the dead, Jesus paying for our sins by taking the punishment we deserve. God has united us to Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. And now God looks at us and sees his son and his righteousness. God has declared us righteous. He sees us as though we have never sinned. It's a life and death of Jesus that fulfilled the law. This was his first priestly work. You see in Hebrews 1.3, it says, after making purification for sins, that means our sins were paid for. We died on the cross, our sins were paid for. We are declared righteous. As Jesus' resurrection becomes the high priest, this is his second priestly work. Hebrews 1.3 continues, he sat down, after making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As we will see next week in Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him, being Jesus. Jesus is continually making intercession for us with God. God has done what the law could never do, given us the righteousness of Christ. It's because of Jesus' intercessionary work as high priest that we can come to God in prayer, that we can petition God, that we have the right to be called his child. We have a better hope. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be drawn to Jesus. Why should we draw near to God through Jesus and no one else? Well, our author has shown that Jesus is the one with all the power needed to maintain our confession and resist the temptation to let go and turn away. Draw near to God through Jesus. He is our high priest who blesses us, whose kingdom and priesthood are eternal, and who brings us perfectly to a righteous and peaceful 
relationship to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you that you paved the way to you, yourself. And Father, we pray for anyone that does not know you that today will be the day that they draw near to you. As we go about our days, we pray that we will continually draw near to you through your beautiful and precious son, Jesus. As in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fofcrc.com.